existence as a mercy to all mankind. He was a universal prophet. But even though he was a universal prophet, the message had to start someplace. He received and he had to be born among some people. So the people whom Allah chose, God chose, to raise among them the last of his prophets was the Arabs of this region, particularly those in the region of Mecca. And when the Prophet Muhammad, may Allah peace and blessings be upon him, came with the message of Islam, there were among the people certain practices which Islam did not cancel, did not invalidate. And there were some practices which were invalidated. Some people in looking at it, the fact that some of the Arab customs were accepted, look, tend to say that Islam is an Arab religion. Or they may say it favors the practices of the Arabs, it's a product of Arab uh, culture. However, this is not so. This is not so at all. Those things which we find that Islam has guided, confirmed of the practices of the Arabs, these things were either practices which were handed down from earlier prophets, as in the case of Hajj. Hajj was instituted, Hajj the pilgrimage to Mecca was instituted by Prophet Abraham. The practices were handed down from the time of Prophet Abraham to the time of the Arabs among whom the Prophet Muhammad was raised. Also, we find that there are some practices which were the result of human intellectual effort which Islam recognized. Because fundamentally Islam and, the, and its principles do not contradict human intellect. They do not contradict reason. So those things which people, due to their own experiences, have concluded are useful, Islam will recognize them. And as such we find, for example, certain trade practices, their methods that they had in in, uh, in barter or in business transactions, some of these methods were recognized. Because if these methods did not exist and they were needed by people, then Islam would legislate them. Because human need is of primary concern in the legislation of laws in Islam. However, I should note that of the principles which were confirmed among the practices of the Arabs, and they were in fact few, the vast majority of their practices were not confirmed. They were only a few, a small portion. But even that small portion which was confirmed practice, what you find when you look at how they appear in Islam now, is that only the basic principle was recognized. However, its form was modified. 
For example, in the case of marriage, they had a number of different ways in which they got married. What Islam did was it recognized one particular form which uh, had in it some concern for the rights of women. It canceled all the other forms which had implied in it, you know, fornication or adultery because they had a number of different forms of, you know, temporary type marriages and, you know, marriages which, which didn't have any kind of responsibility with it, you know, where children are not held to be responsible or to be the uh, inheritors of those who are involved in such relationships, etc. These types of marriages were all cancelled and only one particular form was recognized. But even that one form, there were, you know, uh, modifications which were made, significant modifications which were made to it to make it truly conform to the standards of uh, legislation, divine legislation, which would naturally take into account all of human needs. Now, when we look further, in the legislation of laws in Islam, we find that there is another fundamental principle there, and that is of removing difficulty. You find in a number of places in the Quran, Allah says, لا يكلف الله نفساً إلا وسعها. Allah does not put a, an obligation or a responsibility on any individual except according to that individual's ability. You find in other places, you know, Allah will speak about that there isn't in the religion any difficulty. Allah has not made in the religion any difficulty. You find the Prophet Muhammad when he was sending some of his companions to govern uh, the area of Yemen, he was sending Ali ibn Abi Talib and Mu'ad ibn Jabal, he told them, Yassiru wa la tu'assiru. Make things easy for the people and do not make it difficult. So we find this is a fundamental principle in the legislation of Islamic laws that the abilities of people are taken into account. And furthermore, what we find is that there is incorporated in the laws a concession which is given for times of extreme difficulty. In that, if one finds oneself in a situation where one's life or one's limb is threatened, then those things which are prohibited to you are temporarily allowed to you. For example, alcohol, I'm sure you all know, is something which is prohibited in Islam. However, if one finds oneself in a situation where one is starving to death, there is nothing to drink or eat, and death is on you, and all you can find in front of you 
is a bottle of alcohol. And of course, it shouldn't have been your bottle of alcohol if you're a Muslim, right? I mean, we're talking about a situation where you might have been traveling with some non-Muslims, and uh, you know, your plane crashed or something like this. You're in the desert, and in searching for something, you found in the in the uh, suitcase of the non-Muslim a bottle of alcohol. I mean, you are not supposed to be carrying it yourself, right? So, if you found this situation, you here you found this bottle of alcohol. You are starving to death. Islam allows you to drink. What is necessary to keep yourself alive? Even though the drinking of alcohol is prohibited, you are allowed to drink enough to stay alive. What you drink beyond that now becomes sin. There is a limit. It's not to say it's just open for you now, you're starting, you can do anything, you can drink the whole bottle. No. You only drink enough to stay alive. Anything beyond that now is considered sinful. But this condition is included in all of the Islamic laws where the harm which was in the prohibited practice or the prohibited food or drink is limited to yourself. In these circumstances you are allowed to do it. However, if the harm goes beyond you as in the case, uh, just this last week there was an article in the newspaper wherein a woman was being tried for murder. She was videotaped having tied two young men to a tree. These boys were like 15 or 17 years old. They were tied to a tree. She took a gun and shot them in the head. This was on videotape. Now, she claimed that she killed them to live. This was her defense. I killed them to live. Because the person who was videotaping this had threatened, she claimed, to kill her. She feared that he would kill her if she didn't kill them. So she killed them to live. In Islamic law, this is not acceptable. This is not a defense. Because the forbidden act now is going beyond yourself. You cannot take the lives of others to survive yourself. You know, you're on a raft. There are three or four of you on the raft. You've got no more food. Islam does allow you to eat human meat at that time. Normally, to eat human flesh is forbidden. If one amongst you on the raft dies, then you may eat a part of him to live. Islam allows it. Only under those circumstances. However, it would not be allowed for you to sit as a group and decide, well, so-and-so is the weakest amongst us, so we'll kill him and eat him. No, you can't. You understand where the, where the border has to be drawn? There's a line that has to be drawn there in the case of dire necessity where you may be allowed to do certain things which are normally prohibited. Furthermore, we find among the principles in Islamic legislation the reduction of obligations. Because if we look at the things which are prohibited in Islam in comparison to the things which are allowed, the things which are allowed are many. 
The things which are prohibited are few, very few. And when you look again in the Quran, the final revelation of God to man, we see in it, when Allah is talking about the prohibited things, He will list them by name. Different foods, animals which are killed, you know, uh, by illegal means, which die of themselves, so and so and so. And then after that, Allah will say, and everything else beyond that is allowed to you. You'll find when Allah is permitting things, it is permitted in a general sense. Because there's so much. But the prohibited things are specifically listed. So, we find this as a principle within Islamic law, that the prohibited things are few, whereas the permitted things are many. We see also among the principles is that of the realization of human welfare. Within the revelation of Islamic laws, we find that they came, when we look in the time of the Prophet Muhammad they came in a gradual fashion, taking into account the situation of the peoples to whom they were first sent, and uh, when they reached a certain stage where they were able to, to, to grasp and to understand and to practice, then the final laws were given. For example, in the case of uh, alcohol, we find that in the initial, the initial laws, they were just warning the people, telling them about the harm that was there in alcohol. Whereas, in the latter laws, there was complete prohibition. So, the laws came in a gradual fashion. We find in the case of Salah, for example, even. Initially, the Salah, the requirement for prayer, was only uh, twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. And then when it became obligatory on a five times a day basis, it was only two units of prayer at each time. However, after the people now became used to it, then it w became, it was increased to four units for those who were residents and left as two units for those who were travelers. So we find this modification, this gradual increase taking place in, and modification taking place in various, uh, laws which were instituted to take into account human welfare and human need. For the time which came after the revelation, we find also that Allah and the Prophet, may Allah peace and blessings be upon him, explained the reasons behind the laws, which now enables the people after that time to be able to use the laws appropriately. So this is how human welfare is taken into account. That by understanding the principles behind the laws, the reasons and the causes, then we are able to apply the laws in the circumstances which are most suited. Most, uh, in a work is most uh, suitable. So, we have for example, in the case of the uh, prohibition which the Prophet initially made for the companions, his companions and followers from visiting graveyards, he went on to say later that you may visit the graveyards now. Go and visit them because they remind you of the next life. So it's a principle. In Islam you are encouraged to go to the graveyard. For what purpose? 
You have encouraged fundamentally to go there to remind yourself that death is around the corner. That you are going to end up in that situation also. And that you should try to make the best of what time you have in this life to prepare for your death. So that encouragement is there. We also find in the, among the basic principles of Islamic law is that of the establishment of universal justice. We find throughout the uh, various rulings in the Quran that Allah calls the people to establish justice even if it is against themselves. Fulfill your commandments, you know, your trusts. This commandment is throughout the Quran. We find an example in the time of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu where a woman from a tribe which was a powerful tribe known as Al-Mahzum, this woman stole and she was caught. She was brought before the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and she admitted that she had stolen. Now, the tribe feared that the Prophet, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, would apply the law which was the amputation of her hand. And they didn't want it applied because they felt it would be a shame on the tribe. So they went to one of the companions of the Prophet who they knew was beloved to him. He really liked him. His name was Usama ibn Zayd. And he was the son of a slave, a former slave, whom the Prophet ﷺ at one point had adopted. Now, they went to Usama and asked him to intercede on their behalf, to talk to the Prophet ﷺ, you know, to try and get him not to apply the law on this woman. So he went and spoke to the Prophet ﷺ. When he did so, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ became very angry. And he asked him, Do you dare to intercede in the fixed punishments that Allah has set. Then he called the people together and he said to them that the people before you, the previous nations, were destroyed because when the wealthy, the powerful among them stole, they did not apply the laws to them. But when the weak and the poor among them stole, then they applied the law fully. He said, when I to say after that, if my own daughter Fatima stole, I would not hesitate to cut off her hand. So he emphasized to the people that justice is not something which is for certain segments of the society and not for others. It is universal. And this you find, again, throughout the principles of Islam. Among those principles, there is a point I should have mentioned in relationship to realization of human welfare and uh, this one is related to a question which is usually raised in most uh, lectures concerning Islam and that is concerning plural marriage or what is called polygamy in Islam. As I mentioned before, Islam recognized certain forms of marriage. Right? And this one, the, the form which was recognized included this practice of 
multiple marriage wherein a man may have more than one wife. This form was not introduced by Islam. It existed amongst the Arabs and Islam recognized it but limited it. I mean, before it was unlimited. A man could marry who are many wives he wanted. However, when Islam came, it was limited to the number that Jacob had, which was four. Now, some people may argue that a woman is harmed by a man taking another wife. It is something psychologically, emotionally painful to her. So why is it Islam will institute something which will bring about harm to this woman? Now, what we mentioned as the principle of realization of human welfare, this principle recognizes certain facts. That the number of women in society is greater than the number of men for a variety of different reasons. And these women need to have relationships with men because it is a part of their nature. And the only way that the society can remain just and pure is that this relationship be confined to marriage. Now, if one restricts the relationship to monogamy, then it means that there will be a segment of women in the society who cannot get husbands. And they will be forced to, to have to enter into what we call illicit relationships with men, as girlfriends, as mistresses, you know, call girls, as prostitutes, etc., etc. This is what they will be forced into. So Islam, recognizing the need of the society as a whole, human welfare, it then said, in spite of the fact that there is some harm to that individual woman, if we do not allow plural marriage, then the harm to the society as a whole will be greater. So where there is a greater harm and a lesser harm, Islam will prefer to allow the lesser harm to prevent a greater harm. So as Islam confirmed the principle of plural marriage, to prevent the greater harm which would happen to the society in spite of the lesser harm which happens to the individual woman. This basically summarizes the position of Islamic law in terms of human welfare, reformation of society as opposed to destruction and rebuilding, as well as the obligations which exist in Islam. It should also be noted that all of the principles which have been commanded by God, or things which have been prohibited by God, these have all been commanded and prohibited for man's benefit. There is nothing in Islam which we are commanded to do which is not beneficial for us. And there is nothing in Islam which we are prohibited from doing which is not harmful to us. The laws have human societies 
benefit in mind. God knows what is good for us and what is not good for us. If it were left up to us to determine what is good for us and what is not good for us, then we will set up laws which will favor some people over others. This is something we see in the case of human laws. Every new government that comes in, it cancels some of the laws of the previous government and puts in new laws. Because those who come in, they come from one segment of the society or another segment, and they are mostly concerned with the things which are beneficial to their segment. So there is this constant struggle which is taking place of replacement of laws with new laws and so on and so forth. Whereas the divinely revealed laws of God, these laws are untouchable. We do not change them. These laws are beyond human legislation. It is only for their application. And as I said, they take into account human needs. Some of the laws, none of the laws go against reason, human reason and intellect. They don't go against them. They're not illogical. There may be harm in them, in the things which are prohibited, which we may not grasp. Some things are obvious. Some things have become obvious. Some things will become obvious. But the fundamental principle is that they are for human benefit. This is the fundamental principle behind the legislation of laws in Islam. So, this point, I think, is, is also a very important point for us to keep in mind. You know, when looking at Islam, it's something that we all should know about Islam. You know, so that when we are practicing, those of us who have become, you know, converts to Islam, we are not practicing Islam on a ritualistic basis. But we are taught, you do this, you do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you do this. No. I mean, you don't just do it like a robot. You know, you program a robot and it just starts doing these things and not doing these things. No. That you strive to understand. Because in understanding, then what you have to do has meaning. And for those of you who are not Muslims, who are interested in Islam and have your doubts or questions, etc., you know, you should never feel shy to ask, why is this or why is this not? Islam encourages questions. For the law says in the Quran, Is'alu ahl zikri in kuntum la ta'alamun. You should ask those who know if you don't know. Islam encourages questions. What you will find in the other systems, other religions, which, in fact, are deviations from the true teachings of Islam which was brought by all the prophets, that in these systems there is much which is illogical and which has to be accepted, as they say, on faith. And as such, you are not allowed to question these things. Whereas, as I said in Islam, the door is open for questioning and you should question until you are satisfied. With that, you know, I will stop here now, inshallah, and we can look at uh, any questions that you would like to ask. We will look at the questions which have been written, sent up, and uh, if people have any questions which they'd like to just ask directly, they may also put up their hand. So in the course of answering the written questions, if there are any 
questions which people would like to ask directly without writing them, they may put up their hand and we can, you know, stop or recognize you after answering certain questions. Uh, you want to raise your hand and ask something now? Okay, go ahead, inshallah. You're asking about jihad. Well, you know, first and foremost, when we're looking at uh, questions, we should first look at the questions which are directly related to the topic, right? Before going off, you know, into uh, international politics, right? I mean, the, the basic topics, and of course, I mean, we cannot uh, deny international politics and, and look at it as something separate from Islam. Of course not. International politics has its place in Islam. There are principles, these same principles which I outlined, these principles are also to be applied when uh, looking at international politics. However, we'll try to begin the questions with those things that are more directly related to what we spoke about, and then, inshallah, we can, you know, go on to the things which are uh, more distant. Okay? So, we'll, I'm not saying we're not answering your question, but we'll tackle it a little later. Okay? Inshallah. Uh, we have a question. Yes, okay. Question, I think Islam is a good religion. Also, Christianity is a good religion. So you have your way and I have mine. How can I be sure that Islam is true? Well, this is a question which every human being ultimately has to decide for himself, whether he is a Muslim or a non-Muslim. How can I be sure that whatever religion I'm following is in fact the correct religion. Because we see when we look around us, people following no end of religions. Our brother has said that Christianity is good. I can also say that Buddhism is good. And Hinduism is good. These are the religions that you find, all of them have in them commandments to good. If you look at the basic principles that are there, they are telling people to do good things. And they are prohibiting people from doing evil things. So it's not just Islam and Christianity, all of the religions. This is why people attach themselves to them. Because they have in them principles which are recognized to be good. So we all have to look at what it is we believe in, and what others around us may believe in, and be sure within ourselves that what we are following is in fact the correct path. How do we know? The way in which we can determine is actually quite simple. If we consider that the purpose of our creation is the worship of God. And this is something which we find in all the religions, there's worship of God involved. The way in which we can determine what in fact is the correct religion and what in fact is the distorted version, because I believe, and Islam teaches, that ultimately 
prophets were sent to every nation. Allah says very clearly in the Quran, وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا We sent to every nation on earth a messenger of God. أَنْ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهُ وَاجْتَنِبُ التَّاقُودِ Calling the people to worship God alone and to avoid the worship of false gods. This is a fact. So, what Islam proposes is that that basic message that I mentioned, which was shared by all the prophets, that we should worship God alone and not worship false gods. This is the criterion by which we may determine the true religion and the false religion. In the true religion, only God alone is worshipped. In the false religion, God's creation is worshipped. This is the way we can determine. This is the factor which is shared by all false religions. All false deviant religions worship God through His creation. They believe they're worshipping God, but in fact they're worshipping God's creation. They have rationalized it in a variety of different ways, because the human mind is capable of giving all kinds of explanation and rationale for what they're doing. But the fact is that they're worshipping God's creation. Only in Islam will you find that God alone is worshipped, and not in any way through His creation. It is totally prohibited to pray to other than God in Islam. Praying to other than God is called shirk and this takes you outside of Islam. If we go to Christianity and you ask, why are you as a Christian worshipping Jesus, a man? The Christian will tell you, those who have rationalized it, will tell you, I'm not worshipping Jesus the man, but God who became Jesus the man. But what is the fact? The fact is, you're worshipping Jesus the man. You have rationalized it to say God became Jesus the man, but still it is the man that you're worshipping. And this is why even in Christianity you have, you know, different uh, sects and things which you argue about, uh, was Jesus uh, all God? Or was he part God, part man, or which part of him was God, and which part was man? It becomes a big problem for the philosophers of Christianity. Whereas in Islam, it's just God. When we go to Hinduism, Buddhism, and you ask the people, you know, why are you worshipping this statue? The statue which you bought from the, 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 store, the corner store. They will tell you, listen, those that are more intellectual amongst them, they will tell you, listen, we are not worshipping this statue that you see. We are worshipping God, who is ever-present, everywhere, who is present within the statue. That's who we are worshipping, not the statue, not the physical thing. We know we can break it and all these things, we know, we can make another one. But we are not worshipping the statue, it is God who is present within the statue. So here... Rationale has been given to their belief they're worshipping God. But the fact is that they are bowing down and performing acts of worship before a statue. So, when you go through all of the other religions, you will find that this same principle exists. 
So if one wants to determine what is the true religion, as I said, it will be the religion wherein only God alone is worshipped. The first religion will be one in which God's creation is worshipped. But in the name of God. They will worship it in the name of God. But it will not be God. This is our basic, simple principle. If applied, we can determine true religion. And this is something which is applicable even to Muslims. Because the process, as Islam has spread to various places on the earth, we find that people have, in coming into Islam, brought with them some of their cultural practices. And some of them have been influenced by the peoples around them. And so we find in time that they have incorporated some principles which go against the fundamental principles of Islam. So you may find in different parts of the Muslim world people who are praying to Muhammad. They are not and blessings upon him, but it is prohibited in Islam. So if a person, for example, you know, accepts Islam in that area, he may be taught to pray to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu But this is, this is deviation. This is shirk. This is actually not Islam. They have to use this criterion to distinguish between those people who are in fact practicing Islam as it was revealed and those people who are practicing cultural traditions which in fact have nothing to do with Islam. Uh, question, why is alcohol prohibited in Islam? Now, the Prophet Muhammad has said, Al-Hamru Ummul Khabayis That alcohol is the mother of filth, corruption. This is telling us fundamentally why it is prohibited. Because it produces corruption in the society. When we look at the crimes which are committed, we find that people oftentimes commit these crimes in states of intoxication. People get intoxicated to loosen themselves up. I know before Islam, you know, when we used to go to parties, uh, everybody would feel they had to have some drinks so that they could get loose. In other words, what happens is that you now have the courage to do things that you wouldn't do if you weren't intoxicated. And this is why you find many of the grossest of the crimes, these are committed under times of intoxication. We find, for example, where people are involved in car accidents. The vast majority of the car accidents which take place, for example, in America, they take place as a result of drunken driving. How many people are maimed and killed on the roads because of drunken driving? So we see that there is harm to the society as a whole. Also, people who drink, you know, a lot, we find medical professionals shown what happens to their liver. They get sclerosis of the liver. They can affect their, their brain. You know, it affects their, their physical systems. It breaks it down. It is physically harmful. I know 
Some people will say, I only drink a little bit. I never get drunk. Why are you going to prohibit me from drinking? Well, Islam does recognize that there are a few people who will only take sufficient quantities which will not in any way impair their judgment. It will only make them feel a little nice, a little warm or whatever. And they stop at that point. You have a few people like that, but they are few. So Islam, again, when we talked about human welfare, if we see that alcohol is something which harms the vast majority of people, but a few people from, from among the people benefit from it, what do we do? Do we say it's okay for the benefit of the few, or do we prohibit it to protect the majority? Islam says prohibit it to protect the majority. Because if we were to put the condition that those may drink only who will not get intoxicated, everybody is going to say, I won't get intoxicated. Who is going to say, I will get intoxicated and so I won't drink? Very few people. There again, few. So because very few people will admit that they will get intoxicated when they drink, Islam has to stop it for everybody to protect the society as a whole, as well as the individuals who are not able to control their habits. Question. I am a converted Muslim. My family is not. What should I do? Well, it is your duty to call them to Islam. Allah has blessed you with guidance in your life, it is your duty to pass that guidance on to others in the hope that Allah will also guide them. So it is an obligation on you to call them to Islam. If your wife is a Christian, you are allowed to remain married to her because Islam allows a Muslim male to marry a Christian or Jewish female. If he is Buddhist or Hindu, then the marriage is dissolved unless he accepts Islam. But in the case of a Christian or a Jew, the marriage can continue. But of course, as a Muslim, you are obliged to set down certain principles in your household. And this is why Islam allows the male to remain married to the female. But if a female accepts Islam, then her, she cannot remain married to a male Christian or a Jew. Why? Because the male lays down the law in the home. So if she accepts Islam and he says, I want you to cook me some pork, go down to the store, buy me some alcohol, I want to have a party, I want to dance with this man's wife, and I want him to dance with you. You know, the woman, she is obliged to do what she wants her to do. So she will be forced to, to do many crimes against Islam, against herself and against Islam. Whereas, as a Muslim, male, whatever laws are laid down in the home, that's for the benefit of the home. If he says no alcohol in the home, that's to help the home. It's to protect the home. If he says, you know, no parties, you know, I, or we have parties, it's, 
It's limited scale. You know, you can invite your female friends over, you have a female party, but getting up and dancing and me with another man's wife, and you go dancing with another man, no, 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 none of this. Because why? Because this leads to corruption. So these types of things, you tell your wife, listen, you have to now, you're my wife now, you're Christian, I'm not going to force you to be Muslim, but no more miniskirts. You can't go out, you know, with your body half exposed. No. This is for her benefit. But the, the, the non-Muslim man, he's going to be telling the Muslim woman, no, 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 I want this long dress. This is covering yourself up. No, no. You know, I want to be proud of you. So I want you to wear this short dress exposing yourself. So she is now being forced to do things that are in fact harmful. So Islam allows that male to continue to be married to a female who is a Christian and he is still encouraged to lay down the law within the home and to continue to encourage her to come to Islam. But he doesn't have to force her. But if he finds that, you know, she in fact is not complying with what he has, you know, uh, set down in the home and he is undermining Islam in the home, for example, he wants to raise his children as Muslims and she wants to take them to the church and, you know, to continue to try to keep them involved in Christianity, he may be obliged then to dissolve the marriage because the marriage should be Islamic fundamentally. Even though she may not be a Muslim, the fundamental principles involved in the marriage should be Islamic. And the children should be raised as Muslims. So I would say that that person is encouraged, obliged to call the rest of his family to Islam if uh, it involves his wife, he may continue to be married to her if she's not a Muslim, if she's Christian or Jew. His parents, he should encourage them, but of course he should also take into account, you know, their age and the attitudes of the elders to the youngers. So he should not try to push Islam down their throat. He should try to introduce it gradually you know, with reason, he should also show it in his behavior. You see, because if he comes back as a Muslim, and in fact he is coarser, harsher, rougher with his parents than he was, then they're going to say that Islam doesn't produce a good thing, it produces a terrible product. Whereas if he comes back and he's kind, he's gentle, Islam actually has affected him, so he treats his family in ways that they never expected then this can have a greater effect than any words that may be said. So the best method of calling people to Islam, especially your family, is your own example. Applying Islam in your own life so that you will be a living example of what Islam can do for man. Uh, question, why females in Islam are told to be covered and not males? Uh, this question is not quite true. Males are told to be covered too. I mean, you're not, men are not told to be said it's okay to walk around naked. You know, no. They are told to be covered too. But it's only that, you see, there is a difference in the physical makeup of the male and the female. So the part that is required of the male to cover is not the same as that of the female. Because if you're going to say it's the same for the male and the female, then you're implying that physically speaking they're the same. When in fact they are not. So Islam takes into account that the woman has more attractive parts than the man. So more is required to be covered. 
But the man is also required to be covered. And this is, a, this is a principle which actually a lot of people are not clear on, because uh, emphasis is not placed on it. In the case, for example, of males, what is required for them to cover is between the navel and the knee. Between the navel and the knee. Specifically, the area of the private part. Now, covering in Islam means not merely having material over this area. It means covering in such a way that this area is not described. Because if the covering is thin and you can see what's under the air in the area, then it's prohibited. It's not considered to be covering. And if the covering is tight, where you're wearing tight pants, tight jeans or whatever, so when you stand up, everybody can see your private. You know, when you turn around, they can see your behind, etc. This is not considered covering in Islam. This is prohibited. Prayer in this kind of dress is not accepted because it is a requirement for prayer in Islam that your privates be covered. So if you are going to wear pants which are in any way tight wherein they will expose your privates, then you are obliged to wear a top which comes down and covers that area. This is why you find when you go around the Muslim world where people have evolved the dress which involves pants and shirt, then always the top part will come down and cover this area. Or in other places, for example, where they may wear a top and a pants, you'll find they will wear a sarong, some small uh, garment which will cover this area, looking sort of like a skirt. They will wear covering this area because it is a requirement of dress for males and Muslims, Muslim males, not to expose their privates. And I think this is an area which, you know, in, in, in the teaching of Islam to those who newly come to Islam, it is important for us to, to make this point clear because it is a neglected area. And this is why women oftentimes feel, you know, this Islam is picking on us. All these things we have to do, but the men, they can do anything they want to do. But that's not so. There is a requirement for dress for males, also. Oh, let me just add that, you know, the area, of course, for females, most people can understand why they need to cover from the shoulder down, right? But people have more difficulty in dealing with the hair. Now, the hair in the case of the woman and the hair in the case of the man, if we look to see who is in the beauty parlors, we see that it's not the men. I mean, in recent times, sure, you know, because of those people who are controlling the fashion, and when you look at meet those people who are in, involved in controlling, you know, fashions of dress, etc., you know, in the West, you go to France and meet these people, they're all homosexuals, you know, 90% of them are homosexuals. So what they're doing is they're trying to blur the difference between men and women. So they'll have men wearing dresses that are pink dresses that were normally worn by women, and women wearing dresses that were normally worn by men. So they'll get the men now starting to go to the, uh, to the uh, beauty parlor and getting their hair done up in all these different ways, right? But Traditionally, generally speaking in society, men just go and cut their hair. That's it. Women go and they get all these things done to it. It's blown up and it's flattered and all these kinds of things. In every society you go to, you see this is the way of the women. And they're taught. Their hair is their crowning glory. So, the hair is a means of attraction. So Islam says, fine. We understand. You can attract. But you should only attract those people whose attraction will be appreciated. 
will be acceptable. That is your husband, you know, your children, family. These people can appreciate your attraction, you know, compliment you on it, and it won't lead to anything which is harmful to you. But now when you go outside and you attract people who you are not married to, anybody on the street, they're attracted, then this is what now leads to rape, you know, and, and uh, molestation of women, etc., etc. So Islam, for the protection of the female, it insists that she should also cover her ear. Question, why is it that Islam, or the Islamic religion, does not believe Jesus is the Son of God? Which was written in the book. The term Son of God has been used throughout the Bible in reference to most of the other prophets. In fact, Jesus even taught, as it's recorded in the Bible, the followers to pray, Our Father. This is how it is recorded. Our Father. In other words, we are all sons. So the question of son, in the Hebrew language, in the Semitic language, indicated closeness to God and not begotten in that sense. The word begotten has been added to the Bible. Modern biblical scholars have pointed out that this term begotten has been, is an inclusion. It was not in the original text. So, in fact, the teachings of Jesus was not that he was the Son of God. He made it clear that the Father, God, was greater than he was. And he, in his own practice, worshipped God. He distinguished himself from God. So, Islam, which teaches the distinction between the Creator and His creation, which is based on the fundamental principle found in the Qur'an, there is nothing like Him, wherein God in no way is like His creation. The creation has sons. God doesn't have a son. Because once you accept the idea that God can have a son, then the one who comes to you and says, well, God also has a father, and he has a grandfather and an uncle. Where are you going to stop? Why do you want to stop at son? Why not go all the way? You see, once you open that door, you say, God has a son, what in fact you are doing is you are taking God down from the level of creator and making him like his creation, having sons. So Islam keeps God on the level that he deserves to be kept as the supreme being who is distinctly different from his creation. And as such, it does not recognize, based on the teachings, not human interpretations, but based on the teachings of the Qur'an, the last book of divine revelation, that God did not have a son. And Jesus is quoted in the Qur'an as saying, on the day of judgment, when he is asked, 
why he told the people to worship him. He tells you that he did not tell the people to worship him, that this was what the people did after him. This was what people made up. This was what was attributed to Jesus. But Jesus, in fact, was a prophet of God who will, according to Islamic teachings, return as one of the signs of the last day. Islam believes, this is part of Islamic teachings, and it is required of Muslims to believe that Jesus, the prophet of God, Jesus, will come back to earth. He did not die. He will come back to earth as one of the signs of the last day. He will live out his life on the earth, marry, have children, and die on the earth. He will not bring a new revelation. The revelation is complete. He will be the leader of those who submit their wills to God on earth. Uh, question, what are the criteria in Islam which allows or permits men to marry more than one wife? Well, the fundamental criteria is that of justice. Being able to maintain justice between the wives. Being capable of maintaining the wives if they, as a fundamental principle, of course, if one wishes to, if a wife wishes to maintain herself, that may be removed as a requirement, but as a fundamental requirement, it is there that he should be capable of maintaining those people who he married. So if he is not able to maintain more than one wife, then he is not allowed to marry more than one wife. If he cannot deal justly with them, then he also is not allowed to marry more than one wife. This is a fundamental uh, condition. Other than that, you know, people have, uh, in time, in an attempt to try to make the, the plural marriage allowance in Islam seem more uh, reasonable, they have said, well, you know, a man can only marry another wife if he doesn't have any children by his first wife. But this is not a condition. This is not a requirement. And as I said, human welfare is the fundamental principle which dictates the allowance for plural marriage. And it has nothing to do with having children or not having children. It may seem quite reasonable that if a person cannot have children by his first wife, it is a, a desire of each and every one of us to have children, that it may be reasonable in that circumstance for him to have another wife. But it is not a condition. Could you please elaborate on the adoption just in case people would think uh, the question or request to elaborate briefly on the principle of adoption in Islam because I mentioned to you in the case of Usama ibn Zayd that his father was formerly an adopted son of the Prophet Muhammad so just in case you might think that Islam allows adoption uh, that in the initial stages adoption was allowed because it was a practice which existed amongst the Arabs adoption and Islam allowed it in the initial stages. But later, after the Islamic society was established and uh, principles of inheritance and laws, etc., came into play, then the, the adoption, which involved the changing of the names of the people involved, was prohibited. That is, 
If by adoption you mean taking a child and raising that child and looking after the child, Islam confirms that. But if by adoption you mean taking a child and giving that child your name, Islam prohibits that. Because that child is not your child. The child retains its own name. Just as when you marry, you do not change the name of your wife. In Islam, when you marry, your wife keeps her own name. Because that name that she has indicates her family. When you marry her, does she become uh, related to you in any way uh, genealogically? She is a part of your cousin or your... No, she does not become a part of your family in that sense. She becomes a part of your family only to the degree that she is your wife. But if you, your family breaks up, if you divorce, she, does, she is not uh, a related member of your family, no. So Islam does not allow the woman, when she marries, to change her name to the name of the husband. This practice came from Roman law. Among the Romans, all of their property was given their name. And the wife was considered a part of their property. So when they married, they gave her the name. Because the man had the free will to do anything he wanted with his wife. He wanted to kill her, maim her, do anything he could do it. Because it was his property. Where in Islam, your wife is not considered your property. She is another individual human being who belongs to another family who, with whom you are cooperating in marriage. There are laws you cannot do what you feel to do. There are laws which govern that relationship. And as such, she retains her own name. Similarly, you may take any child or any person, raise them in your family, look after them, do all the good you want for them. Even prescribe in your will a portion of your inheritance for them. You can do all that. But you may not change their name to your name. So that is what is prohibited. So that much of adoption is prohibited. But adoption in the sense of looking after somebody, that is confirmed by Islamic law. Okay, um, I just have the sign which said that there's only five more minutes left. And there are a whole bunch of questions here. I will just be able to take one more question. Well, I think it's already explained. Okay. Question here. Uh, it says, Mr. Phillips, are you trying to convert us? Thank you. It is not possible for me to convert anybody. You may convert yourself. I can only try to point out to you what I believe to be true and give you whatever evidence I have gathered for that belief. But conversion is something which has to come from yourself. If you are convinced, then you may convert yourself by the will of God. So, unfortunately, in spite of the many questions that are here, uh, because the program, you know, is set within certain bounds, we'll have to stop at this point.
and I thank you for listening patiently and hope that whatever I have said has been of some benefit to you and ask you to remember me in your prayers. Thank you. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you very much, Brother Phillips, for the great talk. Now, let's pray. My son, please come over. My son, please. In the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful, praises be to Allah, the Creator and the Sustainer of the world. I testify that there is no God but Allah, the Almighty One, and the Prophet Muhammad is the last messenger, and all the Prophets be upon the most. My brethren in faith and in humanity, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah rabbil alameen, he made it possible for us to have this location. We thank our brother Philip Bilal, he has given us inspirational encouragement and uh, increase our knowledge in Islam. Um, we uh, we in, in, uh, in Jubail, uh, brothers, we would like to uh, ask Brother Philip Bilal, inshallah, to come also in Jubail to give us a uh, lecture. Uh, all our brothers, here in Islamic Propagation Center in Al-Kobar, aided by our uh, energetic brother, Chairman, uh, Brother Ahmad Al-Ahmad, and all our brothers who heartily participated and rendered their efforts for the sake of our Creator, Allah Taala. Inshallah, He will give you a great reward in this life and in the hereafter. Welcome to our brethren in humanity, sharing with us in today's program, and we, so we are so grateful to Allah the Almighty. He gave us chance as a believer in His religion, Islam. It is our duty to convey His divine and love. Revelation in Islam, revealed to our Prophet Muhammad peace upon him, as the final revelation or final testament in order to attain salvation, so that we may enter, inshallah, in His paradise. May Allah the Almighty enlighten your heart to be one of His servants. 
bowing in his way in Islam. As we Muslim believers in Islam, Allah the Almighty, our Creator, commanded us to convey to you His final revelation. He has told us, Say, O people of the book, come to common terms as between us and you, that we worship none but God, that we associate no partners with Him, that we erect not from among ourselves lords and patrons other than God, Allah SWT. This is how Allah, God Almighty, ordered us to convey His divine message to obtain salvation. My brothers in humanity and in faith, this is the great message of Allah SWT calling our brothers, non-Muslim brothers, Christian brethren, that we should realize how God told us to convey the message. I would like to repeat what God has told us. O people of the book, who are those people of the book? They say those who have been previous created by Allah Taala among all the prophets during the time from Moses or Abraham, this is Jesus, they are all the people of the book have been the first generation before us. So God telling us, O people of the book, come to a common term between us and you. What is this common term? We should, the common term what God is telling us here is we should worship none but God, Allah SWT. This is the first message that we should think about we should worship none but God. Brothers in humanity and in faith, we as the creator of the Most High, Allah Taala, must realize deeply that we have individual responsibilities towards our creator. How to attain the right path for the way to his paradise. Therefore, as an individual being, we have different problems. Problems in life that we encounter and priorities in this life. As for me, brother, I would like to share the experience how I choose Islam as my faith and religion. As you know, I was before, I was born 
In fact, I was born a Muslim without realizing it. It was uh, in Arabic, it is, uh, we call it a fitra. Uh, born a Muslim, bowing to the will of God. Now, since I have been a Christian, brought up in a Christian community, so I've learned uh, how to pray to God. But in such a way, we have doubts. We have been uh, brought up to confusion because, as we know nowadays, or even before, has been uh, many questions arising between Christians. Between us Christians before, there are many questions that we are trying to solve, but we are not able to find the solution or the answer. So, Alhamdulillah, you may ask how my way to Islam. Why I embrace Islam and choose Islam as the right path or the only way to salvation? First, to summarize, brother, a few, I am just only bowing to the will of God. What God has been commanded us, if we remember, we go to uh, the Holy Bible, they say Holy Bible, but it's not, in fact, the Holy. But, for consideration, we go back to the Old Testament. There have been priorities that we should take into consideration. That we should know that there are some we are, uh, we, uh, nowadays we are forgetting. We should go back today for a previous revelation. What is the previous revelation revealed by God? First Ten Commandments, if we remember, what is the first command, commandment of Allah SWT? Is that thou shalt not adore any other God. Nor images among his creation. So this, this is very clear that in order to bow to the will of God, to the will of our Creator, we must first follow the first commandment. If not, then you are in the right path. Because God, that's why God has put this is the priority, the number one. Thou shalt not adore any other God. So if we think in this way, we will come to the Islamic point of view 
of God has revealed, completed his mission in Islam. He says, Kul, say, Kul huwallahu ahad, say, that there is no God but Allah. No only one, Allah. There is no like unto Him. This is clear, confirming the Holy Quran. Now, you, if you take it into consideration, you are not uh, analyze, there are confirmation now, and these two facts. So, this is my first thing that I have thought before. So, since I've been searching the truth, the true guidance of our Creator, I'm aware of the way of life. Now, way of life is what I'm telling you is that how to follow the will of God, how we should act in order to follow the commandments of God. I remember, brother, let me quote a part of the verse of the Bible stated by Jesus Peace be upon him. Yes, with the kingdom of God. So, it's clear now in the Bible that Christian brethren are now ordered to seek the kingdom of God. If Christianity has been told by Islam and Jesus Christ that this religion or the kingdom of God belongs to Christianity, then this verse has not been told by Islam. So he himself, in the biblical studies, to, in order to uh, get and uh, to make sure before I have commit myself. I have joined many uh, uh, fellowships to gather more and more information to find the truth about the religion and to know more about God. Who is the real God? Alhamdulillah, God Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving me a chance 
to come here in Saudi Arabia. That I have uh, find the answer of my question. And luckily, which I had never found the answer in Philippines before. Uh, I found the truth about God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, about His religion, He revealed to all His prophets. By comparing this, I have concluded, I have convicted Islam was the first, the last revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to all mankind through his prophet that his religion is Islam bowing to his will or bowing obeying his commandment. And brothers who have, the, who have come to, for today's program, I'd like to share this great feeling It's not uh, just a happiness, but to share with you uh, the guidance which Allah Taala bestowed to us to attain the right path and to have salvation, inshallah. By the way, if you may ask, 